British Art Talks from the Paul Mellon Centre, championing new ways of understanding British art, history and culture. I'm Anna Reid, Head of Research at the Paul Mellon Centre. Welcome to Episode 5 of British Art Talks. In 1967, the art historian Alan Solomon queried what makes a scene. A certain state of mind, a certain kind of collective awareness, a sense of esprit, a sense of mutual reassurance, all of which seem to operate apart from the quality or extent of individual effort. London's new scene, Art and Culture in the 1960s, is a new book by Lisa Tickner, Honorary Professor at the Courtauld Institute of Art, Professor Emerita in Art History at Middlesex University, and a Fellow of the British Academy. It is a book full of unfamiliar, unseen material, drawing on oral history and fine-grained archival research. It reads an art world in the capital animated by new dynamics, transatlantic air travel, arrivals of artists from across the Commonwealth, tobacco sponsorship deals, new commercial galleries, a scintillating new culture of film and photography. In this episode of British Art Talks, Mark Hallett, director of the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art, talks to Lisa about her account of this transformational period and the project of her book, which the author closes by quoting critic Frederick Jameson. What she finally decided to think the 60s was is one of the forms in which you affirm or repudiate a whole part of your own life. Welcome, Lisa Tickner and Mark Hallett. Thanks very much, Anna. And it's a pleasure to talk to you, Lisa, about this wonderful book. And I thought I'd begin by actually focusing on the book's cover and some wonderful photographs that adorn both its front and back. On the front, there's this very distinctive image that I'd never seen before of a model a fashionably dressed model being lifted into the air in front of Rauschenberg's Pilgrim at the Whitechapel Gallery of Rauschenberg's exhibition of 1964. What made you think about using this as your front cover image? This photograph is by Elspeth Uder, and it came originally from a feature called Fab Pop Fash in Ambassador magazine in April 1964. And she chose the Rauschenberg show because she said its awareness and exhilaration of modern city life made it the most relevant setting for fashion on the same wavelength. So I like the fact that already there is this sense that there is a, there is a creativity here between the arts, fashion, the emergence of the Beatles, all of those things that fed into a, a belief that London was a newly effervescent city on the world stage. We don't know who the two guys are. Uh, They're dressed as students, and maybe they were or maybe they weren't. But the model is Queenie Whiteley, who was the wife of the young Australian painter, Brett Whiteley. But what was important to me was not to have the usual cliches on the cover. I didn't want hearts or targets or fairground lettering or union jacks, because this isn't yet another rehearsal of pop. I like the fact that it's a slightly uh, mysterious cover, but I also like the fact that it's by Elspeth, whom I came to, to know at the end of her life and who I liked and respected very much. She was about 95 or 96 when I met her, and she died at 103. 
But lastly, I like the fact that it points to the internationalism of an art world in which London was playing an increasingly expansive part. And on the back cover, you've got this photograph of Kasmin, the gallerist, together with Antonioni, the film director and his film producer. And then the background, Clement Greenberg, all gathered together at an opening at Kasmin's gallery. Why did you decide to put this on your back cover? I very much enjoy this photograph because you don't always have the luck to find an image that condenses a moment in which several of your key players were present at the same time in the same room. It was taken on the 28th of October 1965 in the stockroom at the Kasman Gallery on the occasion of an Antony Cairo opening. It's just a pity that it doesn't have Cairo himself. That would really be a full deck of cards. And Clement Greenberg is behind because he was in London to chair the jury for the John Moores Prize in the autumn of 1965. Kasmin had started his business in 1961 and had opened his gallery in 1963. But by this moment, in October 1965, Antonioni was already in London to research Blow Up, which began shooting in the spring of 1966. So this is just one instance of many links and overlaps between different people who were key players in the London scene and who who tend to recur in different chapters of the book. Good evening. Our programme tonight consists of one single film that we've made about four young artists. They're four painters who turn for their subject matter to the world of pop art, the world of the popular imagination, the world of film stars, the twist, science fiction, pop singers, a world which you can dismiss if you feel so inclined, of course, as being tawdry and second-rate. It would be great if you could now tell us a bit about your book's contents and about your decision to organise it by year. Well, the first of the year chapters, 1962, is devoted to Pop Goes the Easel, which is Ken Russell's film for Monitor, with the painters Peter Blake, Derek Bauchier, Pauline Boaty and Peter Phillips. It was about popular culture, pop art, and as Ken Russell himself put it, all the things we love and relish. Then in 1963, I talk about the Kasmin Gallery. I'd wanted to know more about the role that dealers and private galleries played in the London art world in the 1960s. And this was uh, really an exemplary example, partly because of its extraordinary space, but partly because there was a lot of detail in Kasmin's business archives, which had gone to the Getty Research Institute, about the gallery as a business enterprise. 1964 is called, borrowing a phrase from one of the art yearbooks, a big year in modern art. And this chapter is about two particular and in different ways very significant exhibitions. The first one is New Generation 1964, at the Whitechapel Gallery, and the second is Painting and Sculpture of a Decade, 54-64, at the Tate Gallery. And these overlapped in the spring of 1964. This chapter is interested particularly in new forms of sponsorship. It was new forms of commercial and charitable sponsorship that were largely responsible for a microclimate of relative prosperity in the art world in the 1960s, when the economic picture in the rest of Britain could be grim. 1965 is devoted to private view, as its subtitle called it, a book about the lively world of British art. 
This is a kind of visual ethnography of the British, actually the chiefly London art world, compiled by John Russell, Brian Robertson and Lord Snowden. It grew out of Snowden's work for the Sunday Times magazine, and I would like to say that the importance of the colour supplements in the British cultural scene, along with that of jet air travel, can scarcely be overestimated. Nineteen sixty-six is devoted to Antonioni's blow-up, which was described in a famous article in Time magazine in nineteen sixty-six as his swinging London project. Antonioni carried out very extensive research among artists as well as photographers from the autumn of nineteen sixty-five. He recruited Francis Wyndham and Anthony Hayden Guest to help him, and together they did an enormous amount of research, which feeds into the final film. <laughs> 1967 looks at export, at export Britain, art, mass culture, and the export trade, and this is really about soft power in the promotion of British art abroad. For example, by the British Council and the Board of Trade, as one official put it, the cultural events represent the jam on the trade-earning bread. But the question that I was wanting to pursue here was when art is sent abroad on government business. Or alternatively, in the interests of trade, what kind of company did it keep, and whose agendas did it serve? Nearer home, the sit-in at Hornsey College of Art had lasted for a week when some of the students threatened to end the revolt by handing the college back to the authorities. But many of the staff had already decided to support the rebels. The last of the year chapters, 1968, looks at art school revolution. The Hornsey sit-in. The day-to-day organisation has been looked after by the students themselves and seems a pretty orderly affair. The issues of this Hornsey row are the administration and general conditions in the college. And it might seem like a bit of a gear shift to move to art education, but particularly in the wake of the Coldstream reforms in the 1960s, art education was a hot topic. There were endless debates and seminars, and a large number of documents were produced out of these. Was the point of design to contribute to product turnover, or was it to find design solutions to social problems? The political unrest of 1968, which we saw in its local version at Hornsey, of course swept across Europe and America in 1968 and erupted in the international art world as well. At the same time, countercultural, interdisciplinary, and anti-form activities. On the fringe of the art world throughout the sixties, some of which were politicised and some not, were emerging as the new international avant-garde. In Harold Zeman's exhibition, this is where I took my title from. When attitudes become form, this opened in Bern in March 1969, and in a version curated by Charles Harrison at the ICA in London in August. It was intriguingly another instance of sponsorship for a cash-strapped institution coming from a tobacco company. In this case, not Philip Stuyvesant, but Philip Morris. One of the clearly distinctive things about this book is that it's a succession of standalone case studies. But I wonder how far you think it works and is coherent as a book, as an entirety, as something more than the sum of its parts. Well, obviously, I hope it is more than some of its parts.、Um, no doubt, if and when it gets reviewed, there'll be somebody who will take issue with that particular question. Certainly, we all,、uh, and particularly those of us who are academics, are often short of time and have investments in particular topics. 
If you had an interest in one particular topic, you might zoom in and read a single chapter. And of course, I would hope that it would make sense. If you are an Antonioni specialist, for example, you might think, oh, there's a chapter on blow up. I'll just read that and then I'll go about my business. But that's not actually the aim of the book. The aim of the book, the point of the book, is to be cumulative, to show how an art scene emerges from shifting networks of individuals and institutions, money and other resources, and much less tangible interests and ambitions and beliefs. It's not quite to say it's not an artist that makes the work, it's the art world that makes the work. That would be going too far in the other direction. But it is the art world that enables the possibility of the works and sometimes closes down on other possibilities which are going to have to wait their moment to emerge. As well as a great deal of wonderful historical detail, the book is packed with scores of fantastic photographs from the period. It's one of the things that I felt was most striking about it. It's wonderful to having read it or looked at it in manuscript and then to see it in book form with all of these photographs uh, in play was made it even more exciting to read. But I was struck by how many of these photographs focused on the conversations taking place in parties, studios, galleries, and on the particular groupings of individuals seen talking in these venues. There is a lovely photograph, for instance, on page 98 of the book, which shows a party for the New Generation exhibition at the Whitechapel in 1964, in which you carefully identify many of the people who are shown. So how important is this notion of conversation and of distinctive clusterings of individuals gathered at particular moments to your story? Well, along with some of the other parties in private view, one of which was specially arranged to be photographed, by the way, which is the photograph that Snowden's daybooks record as the book party in the penthouse belonging to Hans and Elspeth Uda. Um, that's a double-page spread which shows Elspeth jumping down from the, from the shelf onto the floor with her camera in her hand. Um, that was specially arranged so that it could appear in private view. But along with images like that, there is a photograph of the staff gathered around the pub table near an art school. Uh, I think it's probably Camberwell. And various artists are sitting there. I can't now remember offhand who they all are, but I think Kitai is there. And it brought home to me the memory when I was an art student of staff going to the pub about half past 12 and probably not coming back until well after three at best. So... Art school was, yes, a place where knowledge was transmitted and skills were transferred and so on, but it was also a place where professional artists got together for quite long lunchtimes in order to talk about what they were doing, what their ambitions were, the shows that they'd just seen, the openings they were going to, if they were going to Venice, if their gallerist had shown anything, if they'd sold anything, um, all of these kinds of things. So art schools were actually central to the art world in a way that people who are outside the art world don't necessarily understand. And I've got to turn now to your extensive <laughs> endnotes, which I have to say you've become quite celebrated. Um, now, there are 100 pages, almost exactly, I think exactly 100 pages of endnotes in uh, London's new scene. So it's a very substantial section of the book. So I wondered what your attitude to such endnotes is. Well, I was hoping to um, stay below the radar on this, actually. Yeah, you, you've, you've made this a kind of front page issue, Mark. 
Uh, I like, it's nice of you to say celebrated. I think my footnotes are notorious, actually. The, the opinion is divided on them. There's a spectrum of views on footnotes. And at the two poles of that spectrum, there is one that says that notes should be citations only. I remember the art historian John White always used to say this rather sternly. If anything's of any significance, it should be in the main text. If the reader needs to know, it should be in the main text. Otherwise, you're just saying where the quote comes from. The other extreme is that the main text needs to be uncluttered. It should flow. There, aren't, there isn't room for lots of kind of interjections and byways and parenthetical dashes and all the rest of it. And the idea then is to put supporting or explanatory material in the notes. And it's clear that that's the end of the spectrum where I belong. I do do a lot of research, for better or worse. I want it to be useful to other people's projects. And I actually love other people's footnotes myself. It's often where I start looking at a book. I go to the back and I start thumbing through. Of course, technically, they're end notes, not footnotes. I often go to the back and start getting engrossed in the end notes. And so do some of the friends with whom I, I share this particular, you might say, perversion. So these footnotes have been pruned, believe it or not. Um, but yes, there's quite a lot of them. But I... I can't see that somebody else is necessarily go to go through the local authority records and discover what Alderman Cattles said after he'd been to a meeting with the, the steering group of the Hornsey sit-in in July 1968. So, so I put it there in case anybody else wants it, you know. Really? <laughs> it's a resource. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it reminds me of your comment that you love spending time rummaging through the archives, a bit of being an archive rat, I think was your phrase. And it's yeah, as if you can, beca- you can become an endnote rat where you just end up spending hours <laughs> uh, uh, rummaging through the Tickner endnotes. I think that's something that we'd all enjoy, uh, or I can imagine lots of students wanting to do. Well, the point is that if you don't enjoy it, you don't have to do it because the rest of the text is there. Just read the text. Now, one thing I really wanted to ask you about was the fact that, of course, you were a student, an art student in the 1960s yourself. Um, indeed, you studied at Hornsey College of Art, which saw the famous student sitting that you write about so brilliantly in the final chapter of the book. So I'd love it if you could reflect a little on how the account you've written in this book relates to your own personal memories of the art scene in the 1960s. Well, because I, I went to art school when I was 16, um, and I was there for six years. And this world was, in general, not my world because I was only a young teenage art student. So I wasn't part of any of these groups of professional artists or filmmakers or whatever. Of course, I wouldn't have been. But there are some things that I remember. There were exhibitions that I went to. I remember very clearly going to the Casman Gallery, which was a much admired place which showed wonderful artists Kasman at one point in an interview complained that, oh, the students would come and eat their sandwiches on the Barcelona stools. Well, I, I don't think I ever had the nerve to take the sandwiches in, but I did often sit in the Kasman gallery on the Barcelona stools and look round at the paintings or the Indian miniatures or whatever he was showing. The closest I come to the topics in the book is the chapter on Hornsey 1968. I left Hornsey in 1967 so I was not there officially, except that, in fact, I still had friends there. I still visited there. And 
for complicated reasons. Um, I was with somebody who had access to a 16mm film camera and we went back several times in the hope that were, um, were the sit-in to be raided, uh, this event would be caught on film. As it happened when the dogs were sent in, uh, we weren't there and we didn't catch it on film. But it does mean that I do have some connection to the Hornsey sit-in. And of course, I was very familiar with Hornsey as an institution in the lead up to the sit-in. And I knew very well some of the objections and frustrations which led to the decision to have a sit-in in the first place. But that was before I went on to university. So I just, I just wonder if your, if your writing of this history was in any way haunted by or shadowed by your own memory of at least having, even if a very peripheral perspective, on that same world or being given a, getting a sense of a, a deeper exploration of a world that you remember only having seen from the outside beforehand. Well, but, but perhaps that last point is, is the very good one, Mark, that, that it was familiar and not familiar, that the, some of the spaces were familiar, the galleries, some of the people... Um, you know, there are particular moments in one pass, one's past that one goes back to. And I think, did that really happen? You know, did I go up to Marcel Duchamp at the Duchamp exhibition organised by Richard Hamilton when he was going round with Hamilton at the opening in 1966 and ask him to sign my catalogue? Well, actually, yes, I did. I, I, it seems like a dream, but I have the catalogue and it has Marcel Duchamp's signature. So I'm Obviously not mistaken. But now I think, well, what was I doing? You know, I did go to a few openings, but I wouldn't have been invited to a Tate opening as a teenage art student in June 1966. So, so how did that happen? I, I don't know. So I think you're right. There is a sense maybe of having been on the outside looking in, which is partly to do with real moments when I was and partly to do with fantasised moments that I imagine. And... Yes, I mean, some people do say that historians of the recent past, there's a, there's a psychoanalytic component. You know, they're always, they're always wanting to rediscover their own life, as it were. Uh, but I wouldn't want to analyse myself to that extent. Um, and anyway, it's taken me some time to get to the 1960s. I started off writing about the arts and crafts movement for my thesis, which... I finished in 1970, so I've been working my way forward at a very snail's pace, really. Can I ask about one other aspect of your own history, Lisa, is that, as you say, through the 60s, and in many ways subsequently, you've, you've, got, you've known art schools very well and known the world of the art school. But at the same time, or subsequently rather, you've gone on to pursue a very distinguished career in academia. And I do wonder whether part of the richness and the granularity of the book does, does derive from this dual experience in history that you've had, that you've been someone who's really been part, you know, worked in a studio and spent time with artists and students, but at the same time, you've also developed all the academic and scholarly skills that are also so evident. And I just wonder whether it's that combination that helps generate this particular kind of perspective. Um, it may be for others to say, I've always been resistant to the idea that 
if you have once worked with artistic materials of any kind, then you have some magically distinct relation to them. And it's a relation that mere historians can never acquire. Um, I actually think that's wrong. And when people have suggested that to me, I've resisted it. I think, for example, that there are many dealers and particularly museum curators and people in auction houses who have an extraordinarily intimate knowledge of works of art. And when I've been on committees with people like that, uh, particularly if it's been, if we've been discussing something which is outside my own period as a modernist, I've been extraordinarily impressed by the way that they've talked about, uh, I don't know, medieval icons or ivory carvings or whatever. So I don't buy the idea that art school is a passport to a magically special relationship to the work of art. On the other hand, I'm, I was sometimes surprised teaching art history students that they didn't really know the difference between an etching and an engraving and a lith lithograph. And, a, um, and then it would be my art school experience that I would draw on to say, well, this involves a burin and this involves acid and that involves a transfer process on a stone. and This is what happens with this and that and so on. So if it has made any difference at all, I think that it has borne in upon me the moral which other people can acquire by other means, which is that it's very important to be attentive. You have really to look. And I think some of the finest art historians are the ones who look closest and longest. But I think we can also look at some of the things that I've looked at, you know, which are films and television programmes and galleries and exhibitions. It doesn't, just it doesn't just have to be the work that we look at. Well, I think we should leave it there. This has been a really wonderful conversation and it's been great that you've been able to give us such an insight into this book, which I urge everyone listening to find and to read and to delve into and to enjoy. Uh, thanks so much for giving us this tour of your book and the London art world in the 1960s. Well, thank you, Mark, for provoking me. Thank you to Lisa Tickner and to Mark Hallett. London's New Scene, Art and Culture in the 1960s, is published by the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art and distributed by Yale University Press. Images of the works described in this episode can be found online at the Paul Mellon Centre website. That's also where you can find previous episodes of the PMC podcast and a programme of virtual events. Join us for the next podcast episode, exploring the narrative of the country house as home with Kate Retford. Thank you for listening. Archive clips are from Hugh Weldon's introduction to Ken Russell's Pot Goes the Easel, produced for the BBC. Newsreel of the Hornsey Sit-In is courtesy of British Movie Tone. Exploring London's art scene in the 1960s is produced by Freya Hellier. The assistant producer is Alexandra Quinn, and it is a Loftus Media production.